This is the Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today, we are going to talk about being on the front lines from the critical care experts' point of view. We have known what COVID has done. I'll just recap some of the data we know about COVID. I know you've heard it, but just a tiny recap. December 31st, 2019, uh, the US Center of Disease Control and Prevention was informed by China that there was an outbreak of unique kind of pneumonia in China, in the Wuhan province. In January 7, 2020, there's a mention that there was an outbreak of a case in Ohio, but the main mention which came out in January 20th, that there was a first recorded case in US, uh, mainly happening in the Washington state from a patient who returned from Wuhan. Since then, moving forward, lots have changed. We have 4.9 million cases in the world. Unfortunately, we've lost 323,000 patients stricken by COVID. In US alone, we have 1.56 million cases and we have lost 92,000 cases. Most of the losses have come in the setting of a critical care situation. Hence our interview today with a very special guest we have here, Dr. Joseph Potoruka, who's the department chair of critical medicine at Mayo Clinic Health System at La Crosse, Wisconsin, part of our Mayo Clinic system, and is also assistant professor of medicine. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Potoruka. Thank you, lovely to be here, Dr. Ghosh. Dr. Potoruka, since you're on the front line and today we're going to discuss all the things that are happening in the critical care situation, I would like to know from your standpoint, there's a lot we have learned from January when we came to know about this till May, a lot of the things that we didn't know about Initially, we thought it was only pneumonia, but a lot came across as far as the critical care was concerned regarding the type of diseases that we know. Could you kindly talk about some of the ICU complications that you're seeing in patients with COVID-19 illness? All right, Dr. Ghosh, what we're finding in these patients is a, the severe consequence and burden of a, a profound inflammatory state affecting a multi-organ system pattern. And we're understanding that it really has to do with thrombotic complications and microvascular complications. When you look at uh, the kidneys, for example, you see a precipitous elevation in their creatinine and burden of renal dysfunction early within hours up until the afternoon of a sick COVID patient. And we've been able to mitigate that with anticoagulation strategies, whether it's continuous heparin. Um, we have run into some uh, resistance with heparin with low AT3 levels requiring gatroban, bivalirudin. Um, in some cases, though, we're seeing hyperviscosity syndrome, like in Waldenstrom's, uh, sludging of the blood in various uh, organ systems, and that has prompted, in some cases, to take the ex extreme heroic step to use plasmapheresis, and then, in some cases, even uh, systemic TPA. And there's laboratory studies that can help guide us on that. There's also a burden in the brain with strokes that we identified early, but also complications from a prolonged ICU stay in the spectrum of delirium and post-intensive care syndrome. These patients are very uh, difficult to come out of de delirium after their ICU course. We're also seeing biliary stasis and possible hepatic vascular sledging. They have early elevation of the uh, LFTs and biliary stasis, 
And we don't quite understand the mechanism, but it could be in that spectrum of hyperthrombosis, procoagulative state. And then there's also this unusual phenomenon with the vasculitis that we tend to see in the younger patients, so the uh, more asymptomatic, uh, clinically respiratory asymptomatic patients with the quote, COVID toes or the capillaritis, arteritis, a quite interesting finding. And I do pediatrics as well. And as you've heard in the news, it's a systemic pediatric uh, situation similar to the Kawasaki's disease that we understand uh, from previous uh, presentations. But we're also seeing it uh, in the lungs. It's not just the burden of the lung parenchymal disease of the viral pneumonia, but also the capillary sludging leading to profound hypoxia. These patients, many of them will uh, end up with aggressive respiratory strategies, including paralyzing and proning, and in some cases, putting them on venovenous uh, ECMO or VA ECMO. But in some select cases, particularly in those hyperviscosity hyper spectrum patients, systemic TPA has been utilized with some effect. So as opposed to other patients who get admitted in the critical care, you are suggesting because of the findings in COVID that these patients are now getting all kinds of testing. They're getting D-dimers, you're checking for ferritin, uh, are you checking for IL-6 on a daily basis or as a required basis? Can you tell me your strategy of monitoring a patient who gets into the critical care, looking at all these different organ systems and what can, can happen? Yeah, so, so what we see is uh, these patients, they come to you somewhat compensated, but they decline very quickly. There's some mixed opinion, uh, but uh, on intubation, the timing of, but we usually have shifted towards intubating these patients early to avoid complications of lung injury. I know this has been discussed before, but it's very important. At that threshold of admission, understanding the pro-inflammatory cascade, we will get those labs. IL-6, ferritin, fibrinogen, D-dimer, CRP, CK, and we will trend those with time. In patients with D-dimers that are uh, markedly elevated uh, above 2,000, we'll get a viscosity. If the viscosity is above 2.5 to 3.5, we'll consider plasmapheresis to really thin out the blood and avoid those sledging complications. If the D-dimer is elevated in a spectrum above uh, 2,000, we look to different levels of anticoagulation, going from the simple subcutaneous to the continuous heparin to a higher intensity heparin. But like I, like I said, that's not without risk and bleeding complications uh, are a concern these patients. Are you monitoring them? I've seen reports of monitoring them by the standard critical care, the SOFI uh, guidelines, but there are specific risk calculators also in COVID that I have seen being used by some centers. Yeah, I think when you, when you look at the different scoring systems, there's obviously the six score, SOFA, Apache, Really, it portends to the severity of illness in these patients. And it's nice to use from a, a literature standpoint and a publication standpoint. Um, it can also be used to understand how we can talk to the families in terms of what morbidity or mortality might look like and having those conversations early, having goals of care discussions. But you can kind of predict it. And there are some calculators based on uh, age and comorbidities. And it's really age plus one comorbidity, COPD, heart failure, diabetes, as uh, portending a poor prognosis. Younger patients tend to do well. Middle-aged patients tend to do, it can be hospitalized, but it's really that more uh, older population, more mature population with comorbidities that really we're worried about and those scoring systems can be very helpful. 
Can you talk more about the incidence of all these clottings that we are seeing? Uh, is it mainly in the form of pulmonary embolism, DVT, or just the elevation of D-dimer with the clotting somewhere, which we are treating based on the D-dimers, or are we based on uh, this individual organ system that are being involved? How are we monitoring these cases? And, and from my understanding and what you're saying, the clotting abnormalities are way out of proportion compared to other critical care patients uh, who are in your unit. Uh, COVID patients have a lot more of these clotting tendencies going on. Yeah, that's a great question. And you really have to look at the pattern. So um, we have our surveillance labs, like I mentioned, the dimer fibrinogen, IL-6, CRP, ferritin. But you look at um, the trajectory of it, also in concert with the other organ systems. So when I talk about a patient that comes in very sick, now is prone, their creatinine jumps from one to five by the evening. Their IL-6 is above 80, their D-dimer is 3,000. Um, you know that patient's going to be sick. You know they're gonna be at risk for vascular complications, thrombosis. You may also see, and we, we hypothesize that uh, there's a little bit of uh, cardiac complications with sludging the coronary arteries of the coronary venous system. So these patients in 40% of cases will have a troponinemia. We're not seeing profound cardiac dysfunction, but have seen like a takatsuwu or a stress cardiomyopathy. And then you look at the LFTs, but it's, it's not uncommon. I've had a, a few cases of a portal vein, uh, a splanchnic vein thrombosis. Um, it's difficult to assess their neuro status, what the uh, thromb thrombosis issues in the brain uh, may be. Uh, but certainly these patients are very clamped down peripherally. Uh, lactates can be elevated. Um, they can have a normal temperature, but be severely clamped down with terrible perfusion. We, really use that pattern of each system in concert with the labs to understand what the trajectory of their thrombotic risk will be and where, what the direction of their care will be. What, what we're really seeing that's interesting is these patients, the ones that are compensated, they may be awake talking to you, reading the newspaper, setting 70. And there's been different theories on, on what the mechanism of that is, if it's a simple parenchymal VQ mismatch. Um, but looking at the pro-inflammatory state, we're running if it's really the, the capillary sludging in the uh, pulmonary vasculature that's causing an intrapulmonary shunt that is very profound. And in some of these cases, uh, we've, we've had patients prone awake and it's provided some benefit. Yeah, that's what the interesting thing is. You could have a very low O2 and yet the patient could be talking. Um, and that really has been an amazing finding. That's what you're mentioning. But the capillary changes and the vessel changes and the legs and feet, they are much more than just what hypotension would do. Is the blood pressure in these patients maintained and they're having this increased tendencies of capillaritis and changes of thrombosis, which is indicating that along with the blood pressure changes, which is different, uh, or maybe an additive factor, the thrombotic issues are probably contributing more to these episodes or there's a combination of both happening at the same time? Like an yeah, I, I think it's a twofold issue. One is the things that we do to them. Of course, we're giving them catecholamines, vasopressors. Uh, in some cases, we're, we're trying to uh, cool them if they're very sick with brain impairment. Um, but I don't think the uh, hyperviscosity and uh, the thrombotic uh, peripheral vascular issues helps. These patients are a little more prone to peripheral 
digital ischemia. But it, when you look at this, I think there's the second hit, which is some sort of vasculitis, and we don't, we haven't validated, we don't understand it well. But we see that a little bit later in the course, seven to ten days, possibly when the IgGs are starting to pick up, and there's some reactionary capillaritis or arteritis. It's very interesting, but. These patients, it's just very unusual, the profound degree of hypoxia. And for those patients with limited reserves, COPD, heart failure, to maintain their oxygen delivery, their DO2, for the SAO2 in the 70s, despite maximal therapy, it's not going to be sustainable with life. They're going to shift to anaerobic uh, lactic production. And despite all the CRT you want, or in some cases, ECMO if you need to, um, and anticoagulation, uh, bleeding issues can arise and, and patients will not be able to survive. So it looks like uh, when a patient comes based on where they are with their involvement of organ systems, at any one time you could have uh, specialists from five, six or seven organ systems, the, you know, the nephrologist, critical care managing the whole issue. And then you have the pulmonologist, you have cardiologist, uh, respiratory therapist. So that's a huge number of people taking care of one patient. And to top that, could you tell all the requirements of PPE and the caution that you have to take to maintain this barrier between the patient and you or your team not to get infected? That seems like a, a huge challenge which we don't um, understand or which we don't describe a lot or has, has been described. That has been a concern for us and our personnel. Maintaining the safety of healthcare workers is a priority. We've understood early on that our stockpiles of PPE has not been as robust as um, maybe we could have planned for. However, we've found ways to mitigate PPE shortages and leverage those mechanisms to uh, use less PPE. So one thing that we've done here locally and we've done throughout the enterprise, I understand, is the recycling of PPE. Uh, repurposing N95 masks, regular uh, masks to be uh, reused, reusing and cleaning uh, face shields, producing uh, using 3D uh, printing technology uh, face shields. We've also had to jump out of the box a little bit. And uh, in some cases, uh, and we have used it here, we're pulling equipment outside of the room. So for example, we have the, on our sick COVID patients, we'll put the ventilator outside the room. We'll put the tubing and the pumps outside of the room. So one, it protects the healthcare worker, that's great, but two, it limits the use of PPE for unnecessary going in, changing meds, changing the pump, preserving that valuable resource. And it's vital that we protect our patients the, and also our staff, but the third thing is that we've been able to use uh, technology. So using our uh, software with the iPads, the InTouch software, Philips software with our EICU, we've been able to have our specialists manage the patient outside of the room without exposing them and also render expert opinion. So it's a combination of thinking outside the box, using novel creative techniques, and then using technology to preserve PPE and keep our staff safe. So in your critical care units, uh, Dr. Portoruca, what kind of medications are you using for these patients? There's a whole variety of trials going on, the convalescent plasma and all the new antivirals. Uh, what are the kind of trials or therapies which you are, which the, these patients are receiving when they are in your critical care unit? That's a great question. We've started some clinical trials here. We have given the patients um, some of the convalescent plasma. Both of those patients survived. I know you'll talk more about that in another lecture, but 
there is some hope and promise that that could be an option for uh, keeping these patients alive. We have used those other unique novel medications, uh, including tocilizumab, uh, particularly in those patients that you think are highly inflamed. So the IL-6 is highly elevated off the get-go. I can't stress it enough. These patients are dying, in my opinion, from the pro-inflammatory consequences. The, body, the body's response to the virus on itself rendering multi-organ issue. Uh, we also have looked at lenzolizumab, um, the GCSF inhibitor downstream to IL-6. Um, we're going to be doing a trial with ravulizumab coming up here to see uh, if that would be an option for patients that are very sick with ARDS. The remdesivir is available here in Wisconsin, uh, FDA uh, expanded access. We have not uh, had to use that yet. Um, I know a few weeks ago it became kind of hyped in the media with some improvement in duration towards uh, short, shortens to recovery and a trend towards improvement in mortality, but looks like maybe that study uh, was a negative trial at this point, so more to come. But when you, look at, when you look at the mechanism of action of some of these drugs, whether it's a nucleoside analog or if it's, if it's a preventer of a downstream inflammatory response, I, I think it's going to be a combination of the plasma and then these monoclonal antibodies that stop the inflammatory response. We've used those medic, the biologics in some of these patients, and we're not seeing the burden of the secondary complications. The renal failure, pulmonary infarcts, pulmonary embolism, DVT, hepatic stasis. Um, so I think that is gonna be the future, if I had to predict about how we're gonna manage these patients until a vaccine comes. That in concert with excellent standard uh, medical ICU care. I think, I think what you emphasize in the end, the excellent ICU care, I think, some of the some of the deaths could be prevented if we have more critical trained doctor like you, expert, and um, the other other expert respiratory therapist. Because I think that we got just overwhelmed with the number of cases which came and needed. Because the amount of uh, expertise which you're talking about, the monitoring, there is a huge burden on the care team provider, and I can't even overemphasize how hard you're working. Now I would like to kind of talk about the, the aspect which is so painful. Uh, you're not allowing any relatives to come into the critical care because of the guidelines and the stress on the relatives. The patients are of course sedated. It's very hard to know how much they are understanding about what they're going through. But how are you dealing with the families of these patients? Oh, it's, it's a great question. It really deals with the humanity side of medicine that we're seeing and maybe some of the ethical issues that can be delved into with this. You know, it's, as an ICU doctor, we get used to giving bad news and it's hard enough to get bad news, but when you have to give bad news to a loved one, tell them that their family member may not survive or possibly die and they cannot be with them at the end. That's torture for not only the provider, the care team for morale, but also for these families. Um, we've, we've had a number of these situations, it's very, very sad. and. While we understand the protective mechanisms of it and what the rules are, in some select cases, we've had to leverage our ethics team to, to see what exceptions can be made. But it really just goes to the, the humanity of this. Patients get very sick, very quick. Asymptomatic is the highest uh, when they're high, highly shedding. Things can be very precipitous and families aren't ready. And it can even happen to young people. We're seeing people in their 20s, 30s, and relatively good health going down or dying or ending even up on ECMO. Um, so 
again, this is, this is the side of this disease that is probably unseen and unspoken of, but it should be talked about uh, more. Yeah, no, uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, the patients are also spending a lot more time on the ventilators. It's not like other cases where of respiratory failure or something where you could be there for two or three days. They could be stretching out for weeks. Is that correct? Or yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, what we've learned from the uh, high volume centers in New York, Washington, is that you don't extubate these patients quickly. You wait. This is a slow extubation. Many of these patients will probably be trached. And we understand now that uh, many of them are coming away with some consequence of, of lung injury or lung scar, rendering them to have some sort of chronic lung disease that may never go away. Uh, so yes, these patients are stuck on the ventilator for a long time. That's not to say that the ventilator is killing them. They need it to survive. And there are consequences to being on the ventilator for a long period of time, whether it's a secondary ventilator-associated pneumonia, whether it's a myopathy from losing all that skeletal muscle, feeding issues. There's also delirium that can be very challenging to pull these patients out. We find if you extubate these patients early, they just don't have the reserve and they usually end up reintubated. And we think, again, it's a combination of the lung scarring, but also, like I mentioned before, the, the capillary prothrombotic, uh, capillary obstruction and VQ mismatch and shunting. I know in general medicine, we are getting ready to see the COVID-19 patients who make through their ICU care. We have seen a lot of asymptomatic patients uh, post-quarantine they have come, but this would be an interesting and challenging time for all of us, all the specialties to manage this group of patients because this is on top of the pre-COVID illness that they've had, if they've had any of those chronic illnesses. So it's going to be a really challenge. But here's a question for you. You are the chair of the critical care unit in a very strategic location between Wisconsin and Minnesota and dealing with a large group of people. And we have now opened up. The governor has said, open up the businesses uh, we are slowly opening up, people are traveling, and there's a fear of a second wave. And we are getting ready for the second wave. It's okay to say being ready for the second wave, because it sounds so simple, but when you are a leader of a critical care unit, what kind of discussions are you having with your team at this point regarding preparedness or setting up units or maybe even getting other places ready, which are not traditionally the critical care units, awards. People have used uh, gymnasiums uh, in Los Angeles and New York, and hopefully we'll never come to that in Minnesota. But what are the thoughts going on in your mind right now? You know, Dr. Ghost, the second wave phenomenon is very real, and it does, it does scare me, to be honest with you. Um, with that Supreme Court overturning and the stay-at-home order banished, patients have kind of made it a free-for-all. And uh, we really worry about asymptomatic carriage. To that end, uh, fortunately, at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, we made a surge plan. And that surge plan includes uh, leveraging all of our intensive care uh, skilled physicians, getting our, some help from Rochester if needed, being part of the Mayo Enterprise, very helpful. But beyond the scope of our own ICU, our plan includes opening up the endoscopy suite to become a second ICU. Uh, opening up our special procedures unit to be a third ICU. And at that point, we'd be out of ventilators, so opening up a fourth ICU, which would be all of the operating rooms, to use the anesthesia ventilator machines. 
And this would require a profound amount of nursing support, respiratory therapist, phlebotomy. The resources that go into taking care of one patient is profound. In fact, just a prone one patient takes about seven to eight people, depending on the size of the body habitus of the patient. So this is a very real threat. We do not want to become a focal point like New York, like uh, DC. This is not something we want to see in the Midwest, but we are at risk and the threat of a second wave is very real until that vaccine comes out. And frankly, I'm, I'm worried what I'm seeing in the community with the lack of social distancing, with the lack of wearing masks, and the burden was going to fall on us healthcare professionals. And that's not just scary for the population as a whole, but also as a risk factor for us to acquire it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Puerto Rico. Those are very excellent questions. And I worry too, but uh, when I see the people around, they've been, they've been homebound for so long. Uh, it's hard to kind of, hard not to recognize what they have gone through. So I can understand part of their uh, behavior not to wear it. And that's been our struggle here to kind of talk about wearing a mask, social distancing. We have to ride it along. I mean, we can't rush it through. You have really brought about a, a point of repurposing your environment, your locations, uh, your places, like you talked about the uh, anesthesia rooms and others if you need to. I'm hearing the same thing from a lot of places where even the lab had to repurpose the testing, the kind of unique testing you're talking about, providing it in a timely basis. So I wish you well, because there's a lot of work you have to do. And I, so today we've been hearing the updates from a frontline critical care physician, Dr. Joseph Portoruca, who's the chair of critical care at Mayo Clinic Health System at La Crosse, Wisconsin. Thank you, Dr. Portoruca, about teaching us and informing us about all the pro-thrombotic and pro-inflammatory effects of COVID, which we have learned over the last four or five months, that it's no longer just a pulmonary, but it's pulmonary plus, plus syndrome. It's not only pulmonary plus, but plus, plus. This is a job for mega task for excellent monitoring in the ICU, using innovations like you have said, remote monitoring, being compassionate to the, the patient's families. I think we have been stretched in all direction and we are rising to challenge from all the directions. So that's a lesson to be learned. And I thank you for your insights. Any last minute statements from you regarding what we should do to identify these patients earlier, maybe not get them to your, your level of care? Or is it, is it that we cannot predict the ones who have to end up in critical care will end up regardless. Can we prevent some of these cases from going to you? Yeah, thank you for that closing statement. And I'm really humbled that uh, to be here um, sharing information with you. I think the message that I would say is those vulnerable patients in your clinic, educate them to socially distance, educate them to wear a mask and avoid public places. And then lastly, test. We have the serology now, the CARE Act will pay for it. Don't be afraid to test. That's one way we're gonna be able to screen and mitigate these exploding numbers that we anticipate in the second wave. Thank you, Dr. Puerto Rico. Uh, we'll continue bringing you updates on the situation. We just heard Dr. Puerto Rico talk about, regardless of all the technological advances that we have in Mayo Clinic and Mayo Clinic Health Systems, he is absolutely emphasizing uh, the basics, uh, taking attention of the basics, uh, washing your hands, 
wearing a mask, social distancing, that is probably vital as you go along with your life. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and I'll see you back next week.